Welcome back to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast with our specific focus on women leaders in tech. And today we have the great pleasure in welcoming Gwen Tormley, the COO of CoreStream. It's our first time having a COO on the show. She brings with her a wealth of experience with a background having graduated in Stanford and throughout various different roles to her current position where they're shaking up the benefits space um, helping organizations work better on their uh, voluntary benefits and market their culture and nuances as an organization. So keen to jump into that, but more importantly, welcome to the show, Gwen. Great. Thanks a lot, Ross. Happy to be here. Well, tell us about that journey. You're a bit different in that you went from the West Coast to the East Coast, which we don't see as often. Uh, you know, you went from uh, the earthquake part of the world to the <laughs> hurricane part of the world uh, or country, should I yes. say. So tell us about your journey academically, professionally, and what brought you to this the C-suite and the COO role. And a lot of people we speak to say, they didn't wake up as a six-year-old or a 10-year-old and say, I'm going to be a CEO someday. Uh, it wasn't an active plan, but you know what? That's part of the story and that's what makes it interesting. So tell us about your journey, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, born and raised in New York and I um, went out to, to college at Stanford in California, as you mentioned, I just fell in love with um, the area. When I went to go visit, I just felt like there was such a um, uh, an environment of innovation there and also enjoyed the fact that it was warm and there were a lot of palm trees and so made that trek out there. Um, just had such a positive experience um, at Stanford and then in San Francisco thereafter working that I didn't think I would ever leave the area. Um, yet here I am in, in Tampa, Florida uh, and loving it actually. We came out for my husband's role. So I'll get to that in a moment, but um, that, that was what kind of prompted the, the move back East um, right after college, um, so I studied management science and engineering, I'd say one of the more practical um, majors that I actually feel like I do use what I learned um, undergrad day in and day out um, in my job even today, which is, you know, not particularly common. Um, so out of undergrad, I went to work at Bain Company in management consulting, um, did that for about two years for about half my time there for about first year I focused on private equity clients and helping them due diligence on um, prospective new investments. And so that got me really interested and peeked into the PE world. It was mostly um, deals around tech, um, pharma, um, health technology, and that turned me on to health tech as well. And that played a role in my um, career shifts thereafter. Um, so after my two years at Bain, I moved to a private equity firm called Golden Gate Capital based in San Francisco that had actually spun out of Bain Capital which had spun out of Bain um, many years ago. And so um, went there, they covered most industries across the, the um, GDP, but they did not cover healthcare or health technology, which was a personal interest to me. I was focused on industrials and industrial chemicals. Um, so, you know, while I spent those two years really getting the financial skill set and the investor skill set, um, which was fantastic, I really wanted professionally to be um, A, in a role that was more focused on health tech and the whole digital health um, movement was really just getting going then. This was in 2010. Um, and I also wanted to try my hand as an operator. I had a lot of friends that were starting businesses, successful entrepreneurs, you know, in Silicon Valley at that time, that was really um, taking off. I've been there for a while, but, you know, post-recession, things were um, really starting to take off as far as um, seed fundraising and venture capital. And so saw that success around me and decided, okay, let me go back to school. Let me go back to business school. Let me uh, focus that time on 
pivoting into an operational role, focusing on um, health technology. And I actually wrote my business school essay about how I wanted to be the COO of a digital health company, um, yeah. whether it was a startup or someone else's. So even though I wasn't, you know, as a six-year-old interested in becoming a COO, I think I realized, you know, relatively earlier in my career that um, my strengths really play well to the COO type role rather than the CEO role. Maybe that'll change one day. We'll see. Um, but just given, you know, what I really enjoyed day to day in the workplace and what I felt like I was good at, um, aligned well with that. And so hence the, the focus on that. So went back to Stanford, got my MBA while I was a student there. I, um, actually started a company, a digital health company focused on effectively telehealth for physical therapy. Um, for, kind of, the idea was kind of born out of my own experience with PT from a knee injury that I'd sustained um, in the first part of my, my time at school. And so um, started a company called Footstep Labs. The app was called Footsteps. Um, ran that company for about a year and a half, two years, uh, built up a small team, launched an app to effectively mirror like an exercise app that you'd use on your phone, um, like Nike Training Club or Peloton or any of the myriad of exercise apps out there, but really adapt that to physical therapy. So you could use that in tandem with your in-person visit with your therapist to be able to check in on you remotely, make sure you're doing your exercises between visits, help extend visits and help you get more out of um, however many visits is covered by your, or covered by your um, insurance. And so um, did that for about two years. Upon graduation, we were you know, looking at the business model between um, whether payers versus providers versus the patient would you know, cover the cost. And I just didn't feel like the business model was sound enough for me to go out and take venture funding. Um, you know, the second you take on funding, it's a, it's a real thing, right? You're, you're on a path, you can't get out of it and you need to make sure it's successful. And I just felt like given my background as an investor, I was just running the math and I just didn't feel like the unit economics were there to support taking on funding. And so decided to step away from that business. Um, and, you know, I think we we're a little bit early on the telehealth train as well. This was like 2013, 2014. Um, now there, you know, especially with the onset of COVID, there are a lot of telehealth businesses cropping up, particularly um, and including physical within physical therapy. And now there are, um, you know, diagnostic codes that can be reimbursed for that through insurance. So I think we're a little early to the gate, but it was still an excellent opportunity for me to um, realize, you know, A, what I was not good at. And, uh, you know, I think some of that was working in product, working with an engineering team like that is very hard. And that is not, you know, particularly my skill set. That's somewhere where I want to maybe complement my skill set. Um, and that early, early stage um, is just so difficult, right? You're cobbling together, um, a, you know, a team from wherever you possibly can. You can't really pay them. You're doing everything from setting up QuickBooks to sweeping the floor to trying to take on, you know, investor capital to designing an app. So um, I really liked the variety of that, but it was just, it was a lot. And what I realized was, I think um, I'm best served at the kind of early growth stage um, or kind of maybe called Series B, Series C-ish type company where it's established enough and has a revenue you know, model, um, but it needs a lot of cleanup and there's a lot to improve. And so that's really where I found myself after business school. I went to a company called Stride Health um, based in San Francisco that had just, I think they'd done their Series A at that point for about I don't know, 30 people or so, um, had been around for about three years. And that was a really, really good sweet spot for me. It was an operational role. It had you know, finance, um, operations, biz ops, as well as in terms of the analytics and forecasting and all that good stuff. 
um, built up a team there, um, really enjoyed that role and was in it for um, about a year. And at that point, my husband got this amazing job opportunity in Tampa, Florida. And I just had thought I was a lifer in Northern California, would retire there. I had this whole plan in my head and he was like, Hey, I got this, uh, you know, role that I can't really pass up. What do you think? And I was like, you know what, let's, let's do it. Let's try it. So we moved across the country together. Um, we, we ended up getting engaged right around then as well. Um, I was the first person to go remote at a company of at that point around 50 people. So that was interesting, but it actually worked out really well. You know, we, we, um, this is a, still a pre COVID world where that was not so common. Um, I was commuting back and forth, you know, every couple of weeks, but made it work and um, things were going really well. But at some point, you know, we're moved in, um, fully moved into Tampa. And I realized that, you know, once we start a family, I don't want to be commuting across the country every, every other week. And so decided to try to find a home um, at a company that was similar in a lot of ways, um, was still very much interested in the kind of operations analytics path, really loved the healthcare technology um, uh, area industry and um, was looking for something also in that early growth stage phase. And so um, had a lot of coffee, probably spent like three months having coffee every single day with three, four, five different people and met a lot of the, the movers and shakers in Tampa and um, ended up getting connected to CoreStream, um, where I am today. So this was summer of 2017. Uh, I think next week I hit my five-year mark, which is really exciting. Um, so I guess a little bit about CoreStream. CoreStream is um, a voluntary benefits platform, technology platform for particularly catering to large and enterprise size clients um, where you go to enroll in your benefits, particularly your voluntary benefits. So things outside of core medical, um, dental vision. And then we also have an employee perks and discounts um, portion of the site as well. So think of, you know, 15, 20% off on Apple, Samsung, things of that nature that are um, basically the entire pro, uh, platform has curated discounts and deals, whether on the benefits or the, the discount side of things that are above and beyond what you can get, you know, on the open market. So I'll talk a little bit more about CoreStream, but that's where I am today. I'm the COO, um, get to wear a lot of different hats, but similar type situation where, you know, the company was maybe 25 people when I joined, we're now about 130. So get to do a lot of different things, but, um, yeah, and it really enjoyed the, the variety that I get to experience there. Definitely keen to dive into the COO role yeah. in the context of that. And I know I know John will have a lot to say there around your background and how you operationalize and scale up an organization around OKRs, which I know is something you're passionate about. But we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to pick up on something you had said right the way back at the beginning, where you come from a traditional science and engineering background and you felt that that really served you quite well. It's certainly my belief. I'm a computer scientist by training. And I felt having joined, you know, organizations in the hardware and software space like Dell and Quest and such that it gave me kind of a fluency that I knew when I was actually speaking with customers that I understood the technology and where they were coming from and mm -hmm. where we were trying to solve. So I'm just curious to know if you would would echo that experience. And moreover, did you feel that, you know, science and engineering in your discipline was was well attended by females? And do you feel that that's something we need to work on? And how how might we you know, I, I certainly remember in, 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 in college, there were like a handful of girls um, in our, in our team. Now, some of them have ended up being lifelong friends of mine, et cetera. And, and they've gone on to be very successful, but there weren't enough of them. Right. So I'm curious yeah, to know yeah. how, how your experience panned out there and how we can better encourage that and what advantages it brought to you in your career. I mean, tell us a bit about your experience and maybe that fluency it brought you in your career, if that had been your experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so my major was management science and engineering. It's basically Stanford's term for industrial engineering. So it's almost like a mix of business engineering, management science, if you will. Um, but it's within the engineering school. And so I think because it's in the engineering school and there's so many prerequisites, it just, I don't know what the gender ratio is today, but when I was there, um, it was maybe, I don't know, 15, 10, 15% women. So yeah, not, not many females in that um, major. And then similarly in my career, less so in consulting, that was pretty well-balanced, I would say. But in finance, I was the first female that my private equity firm had ever hired. And they'd been around wow. for, I think, 11 years or so by the time I joined. And that's since changed, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, by no means is it 50-50. So I'd say both in terms of the engineering background, as well as the finance side of the house, for whatever reason, there just aren't a lot of females. But I do think it adds a really important, you know, element um, to the, the diversity of thought, um, you know, just different perspectives. Um, it really rounds out the team diversity in general, of course, not just gender. And so um, I guess to your question around, you know, how do we get more females that are interested? I know there are so many initiatives now around um, STEM and now they're calling it STEAM pretty early um, in school to get girls interested in those types of, you know, vocations or professions. Um, and I think that's really where it starts. Like I enjoyed math very much as a very young child and continued to like it, you know, throughout. And I think that's probably because I had exposure to it early, had some really wonderful teachers growing up. And that just kind of continued that helped um, build up my confidence around it. And I think that helped to sustain me and keep me um, interested. So in terms of the the COO role, um, I'm, I, I have a curiosity around this, if, if you don't mind um, yeah. giving us your uh, I suppose your your viewpoint and and your your firsthand experience. Um, my own experience tells me that uh, the kind of CEOs I've worked with successfully, um, they seem, uh, and I say this and uh, flippantly, but they, they seem to be like the only adult in the room sometimes, <laughs> and the they kind of counterbalance. You know, the kind of overzealous. Um, you know, founder CEOs and leadership teams who 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 don't really have a, a depth or a breadth of experience that is um, kind of really important to uh, look at both the short term and long term needs and goals of an organization. You know, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the so for me, it's um it would be probably the next most important role I feel anyway to the CEO. And in fact, like I, I've seen in 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 my experience again, loads of organizations that have the CEO as the kind of, or this carries COO as the next kind of CEO in waiting, right? Because essentially, you know, you, you would be considered as the, the right hand to the CEO, so to speak, you know? And mm -hmm, again, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's probably the mo one of the most challenging roles, I think, in the organization kind of driving strategy and growth and then kind of seizing opportunities, both in, in the short term and, the long term. So, the what what does the role mean to you? Like, if, if people are listening to this, right? What 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 makes a really super CEO in in your view? And how come that was your first role? Like, so you did all this stuff. You have the you know um, a Bain wonderful company. You know, you have all this management experience, management co consulting experience. You've worked with you know kind of uh, organizations in specific verticals at specific times, and the and then you have all this coffee. And then you decide, I, I'm a COO, right? <laughs> Maybe it was all the coffee that drove you to be the COO, but um, you certainly need it. But um, tell us about the role, would you, your view on it, kind of, and, and then how 
you gravitated towards that or, or how it was, uh, how you came to the conclusion that, wow, I'm a, I'm, I could be a really great CEO here. Yeah, there's a lot there. Really, really yeah. good questions. Um, you know, I read an interesting article that was an HBR article uh, many years ago about what does a COO mean? Like, what is yeah. that role? And it effectively said, for pretty much any other role, there's a there's a job description. Whether you can add some bullets, take away from that, sure. But with a COO, it's really like what the company needs. And it, it proceeded to go through eight different types of COOs that can all be successful, right? But it depends on what the organization needs, which is, you know, of those eight archetypes that the article outlined would be the most successful. And so one of them was, as you mentioned, the CEO in waiting. There was another version that is, you know, more senior, right? Like almost a mentor to a younger CEO, one that's more um, operationally and organizationally focused, which is, I think, really where um, my role sits today and what Coursery needs is the structure around the OKR process. To your point, marrying the, the long-term vision of the CEO with the short-term goals of each of the team leaders to make sure that those two are in sync and building toward one another um, on an ongoing basis. So I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. And that was very appealing to me where I was like, okay, this is a really multidimensional thing. Mm. Um, and I get bored very easily. So it's a really good thing for me to stay, you know, to be able to stay one place long-term, I need to be constantly challenged and doing different things. And that's a really important aspect of a successful COO, I think. Um, in terms of, you know, what led me to go down the path of COO, um, you know, I'm trying to think back to my admissions essay for, for Stanford. I, I'm a very organized person. I love to, similar to what you're talking about, long-term, short-term, but also big picture thinking, marrying that with the details and being able to go down deep and then be able to, to um, rise back up to the 10,000 foot level, be able to interact with the board, but then go deep with a particular team. Um, I really enjoy that aspect of it. And I love the breadth um, that I have in terms of the visibility into the entire organization. Um, and I, I somewhat came up through a biz ops type role as well, which is like a business partner on the analytics and forecasting side to different um, verticals or, or um, you know, roles within an organization. And that helped to also give me as a more junior employee, um, a really good uh, broad perspective of an organization to see how all the pieces fit together. Um, and so I felt like the COO role was one in which I could continue to have that broad view of an organization, be able to put the pieces together and not feel like I only knew marketing or I only knew product. Um, that really appealed to me as well. Yeah, because the and the reason I mentioned the only adult in the room is sometimes you have the aspirational element around revenue and sales, and then you have yes. the fluffy element around you know forecasting and you know top of the funnel uh, stuff that you know kind of we're at least we're creating some demand, and then you kind of you, you kind of really you know pressure people to to kind of you know get to a realistic um, uh, situation here around uh, what all of that means uh, versus what we had intentionally set out to do. So in terms of that intentionality, um, the uh, we, we were discussing off air earlier around, you know, your, um, your, your fondness for the, for the OKR um, mm -hmm. um, methodology. I, I think it was first conceived in, in Google, I believe, or, or um, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And they, mm -hmm. yeah. So could you, could you tell us, um, for people who are looking for a framework, how does it work and how effective is it from, from your perspective? And 
what are the the kind of nuances or the quick hacks that would help somebody some actionable insights that would help somebody implement this so for example if they are using i don't know smart goals or they're using just you know kind of like here's the three goals the company wants to do and then it, it, you know a lot of the time people are off in silos doing their own thing and those things mm-hmm. don't integrate yeah or they don't yeah. add up so somebody who's an expert at as you said the short term and the long term goals and stitching all of those together it seems like your role is so you use some kind of crazy glue to kind of yep. build all those bridges and and make sense for everybody so that everybody seems to be working towards kind of layers of goals that eventually kind of add up to whatever the corporate goals are. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'd butcher that as a definition, but could you unbutcher it for me? No. Or, or... Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. Um, and the first thing I'll say is it's not a perfect solution on day one. Okay. You have to be comfortable building um, year after year uh, on the process. And every year we improve. This is our, I think, sixth year doing OKRs, fifth or sixth year. And every year we get better, but we're not done. Um, and by no means do we use at CoreStream the kind of perfect OKR system, but we've adapted it to what works for us as an organization. And that seems to work well. Um, you know, year one was effectively just um, assigning goals. I believe at the time it was maybe on a quarterly basis or an annual basis, I can't recall, to different teams to help improve each of them individually. So it was less about combining everything together, but let's just get people thinking and talking um, about, you know, stretch goals and let's get people in the habit of measuring and all that. And at that point in time, it was really top down. Um, it was more like an MBO, which was kind of the predecessor to, to OKRs. Um, it was like, Hey, this is what your goal is going to be. I'm going to measure it for you. Um, I fully knew that it's much better for the team leader to come up with their own team of what the goal should be and to measure it themselves to feel ownership. But in that first year, that's what worked for us. And the next year it was like, okay, come with your goal, but we'll help you measure. Then it was, okay, you got to measure your own goal and come up with it. And it's a negotiation process. Then we moved to a quarterly cadence. Um, most recently in the last 18 months or so, we have uh, moved to a format that has, it's almost combined with um, a great book that I highly recommend called the five, Dis- um, excuse me, it's called um, uh, Four Disciplines of Execution, 4DX. And um its premise is, okay, you have to start with a company-wide North Star goal, a single goal that everyone can easily measure and see and put up on a scoreboard. And then that effectively trickles down, right? So you've got your company-wide almost like objective, which is like the O and OKR. Um, OKR, by the way, stands for objectives and key results. Yeah, I was just going to ask you to dissect that. because yeah. <laughs> so the components of it really are the OKR acronym for our listeners who, who, who don't know, and sorry if we skip through that bit, is the O is the objectives, right? And then the KORs are um, usually the key results and usually they're quantifiable, like they have to have numbers beside them, right? Right, right, okay. right. And okay. a good way to think about it um, that the 40X book talks about is um, from X to Y by when. So not just hit this goal, it's like go from here to here by this date. So it's really easy to effectively plot you know, progress, right? Your goals progress versus actual progress on a scoreboard, ideally real time or on a daily, you know, weekly cadence to see, okay, how are we tracking? What are we going to do about this and drive that into action? And so that's do sort you of the use a, Sorry for interrupting you. Do you use yeah. a, 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 um, just what I think of the question, do you use a spreadsheet for that? Like a shared spreadsheet or do you actually, is there a software program you use where you can see your progress towards goal and people input their stuff or do you use, I don't know, monday.com or some project management software? How do you guys do it? 
Yeah, exactly. We use Smartsheet, which is a competitive Monday, so similar type thing. Yeah. Um, we will also we also use um, Power BI, like Tableau, a visualization software for certain OKRs that we can pull from our data lake and be able to be tracking on a real time basis. Not doesn't make sense for all, you know, measurements that we have, but where we can, we try to do that. Um, so it's hands off. I know there are plenty of um, OKR software out there in terms of just a specific focus on OKRs, but Smartsheet works for us and we already have those licenses. So we decided to kind of continue with that. And you can you know, have automated um, reminders to for people to put in their not only results, but what we're really big on is focusing on um, what did you learn in this past month and what, what are the metric drivers? What did you learn and what changes are you going to make with your team to improve for next month? Um, so we currently have that North Star goal, then we've got company-wide key results that support it. And it's effectively like, if you multiply those across, that gets you to the North Star goal. So for us, it's enrollments, enrolling in at least um, one product through, through our software. And so for a platform, and then the key results are, you know, sales driving more clients, you've got a broader audience, you've got um, marketing, focusing on getting traffic to the site a product team driving conversion on the site itself, and then churn reduction, which is all of our operational teams, which also you know, support the, the rest of the key results as well. And then down at the team level, they've each got their own KRs or their own OKRs for the quarter. They're coming up with those. It's a negotiation process. We have a cadence now. They're measuring it, whether it's automated or not. And then we um, meet as a leadership team on a monthly basis to review progress, talk about learnings, um, and all that. And then for certain teams, we've implemented aspects of the 4DX framework above and beyond that, which is um, meet with your team on a weekly basis in um, what they call wildly important goal sessions, WIG sessions, to talk through the scoreboard. Where are we versus a scoreboard as of today? Um, what specifically did you do last week to impact the scoreboard? And what are you committing in this next week to impact the scoreboard? Talk about one thing. So it helps to focus people down to the individual level. It helps to um, drive accountability around actions that actually move the measures because for a long time we were just measuring things, but behaviors weren't changing. And so of course then the results aren't changing. So trying to incentivize people to really talk about, okay, what actions am I concretely taking this week? No matter what else happens, we understand there's the kind of whirlwind of the day-to-day. -day. I must get this one thing done this week. That has helped tremendously. Um, you know, again, by no means are we perfect, but that is where we are today, and it's um, you know definitely a lot better than we were where we were five years ago with the OKR process. Yeah, that's that's wonderful, and th thank you so much for for that explanation. We've come across a few times on the show um, already about the the kind of north star metrics, and usually mm -hmm. they involve um, customers. You know, kind of how are you going to mm -hmm. impact um, customers um, effectively, yep. and then um, the other elements of I think it's big hairy audacious goals yes. and are you calling wigs yep. yeah same yeah. thing and um there's um there, there's a couple of um other elements in there in terms of um uh, only on our last podcast we had the kind of stop start continue um, yes mm -hmm. and it's it's that kind of it's that kind of framework that is inculcated in some organizations that is not necessarily tops up um or sorry not not necessarily tops down but bottoms up as well and yeah. people have the ability to give that feedback to their leadership uh, team as well you know which uh yeah, exactly. which is very effective and it was a new one on us as well you don't see that too uh you don't see that too often you know um so tell us look core stream why why is it such a 
awesome place to be. Why um, would anyone want to be over there? Um, Gwen, could you tell us? And, um, you know, what's going on? Um, you know, you, you, you spoke to kind of the, the growth from when you joined, for, like there was mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 people to now there's mm -hmm. over 150 or something like that. And you're continuing to grow and mm -hmm. you're, you're impacting um, the, the top level of organizations very effectively. So could you tell us a little bit about why is it a great place to be and what's going on over there and what the outlook is like for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I love working at CoreStream. It's, okay. uh, I think the, the reasons why I love it are the people and the goal that we're tackling. Um, yeah. We have really invested in our talent and in our culture and making sure people are happy, especially in this we're still, we're very much remote work environment. Um, at this point, probably well, over half of our employees are not in the state of Florida. And so we've got an office. Um, it is sparsely populated typically. And so people are all over the place. So making sure that people are happy and, and feel really fulfilled in their career or getting um, uh, uh, productive, you know, career development and feedback and opportunities to grow um, and are really um, mission-driven and working on something that matters is really, really important to us and is incredibly important to our CEO, who's the founder as well. Um, and, and the second piece is working on something that matters. I think um, we're really trying to reimagine the voluntary benefits um, landscape. I think historically voluntary benefits have been um, something of an afterthought. Think anything from like accident insurance to pet insurance to, you know, um, mental health above and beyond what your core medical may, you know, offer you. Um, it's something that traditional brokers may have just tacked on alongside your traditional health dental vision as another way to earn commissions, right? Um, and, and I think for us, we're really trying to think about, okay, how do we deliver the right product to the right person at the right time in their life journey um, to help them financially and help their overall well-being as well as their families? Um, and so we're moving to uh, a world of, you know, recommending particular benefits, um, explaining why other benefits don't make sense for you in your life stage right now and figuring out how do you deliver particularly financial protection to um, our end employees through our clients um, by delivering them these pretty low cost um, plans to help, you know, bridge gaps that their health insurance doesn't cover, um, things that are completely out of the health sphere, right? So if they've got a pet, um, helping them to pairing them with the right discounts from our discount site, um, as well as you know affordable pet insurance to be able to support their furry loved one. Um, and, and the list is kind of endless in the types of products that we can offer. Um, that's where it gets really interesting. It's not just your traditional voluntary benefits of uh, critical illness and hospital indemnity and all that, but um, pushing the envelope of really like anything that is a subscription-based product that can be paid for through payroll where we can deliver a discount because of our scale that can be of value of our use or, or of use to our end employees. You know, that's a voluntary benefit. That's something that a company could um, decide to offer for their own talent and uh, attraction and retention um, um, goals. So it's kind of an interesting new fresh perspective on voluntary benefits. Um, and that's, I think what, what makes it really fun. Seems like you guys set the tone for culture. Um, I'm curious mm -hmm. to know about how you live and breathe, you know, your own kind of benefits culture. And obviously the benefits is a large part of that. And I'm curious yes. to know your take on culture and wh where does it emanate from? Because it, from, from our experience, it does largely fall on the CEO's COO yes. desk as well as the CEO because it's got to come top down, right? So what does that look like in your world? And maybe share with us some of your beliefs around that, that tonality of culture, if you would share. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's totally right. As much as we've tried to say, okay, it, you know, comes from the whole team, which it does, it's, it's still very much impacted and influenced by the CEO. And so luckily um, our CEO founder, Neil Vaswani, um, is very invested in developing a really strong performance-driven team. Um, he's really big on empathy and humility. And so those have just been longstanding pillars of our cultural values. And it tends to be, you know, who we try to hire. And so what we've done recently to um, really embed our cultural values within our company, we developed, um, we formed a culture council that meets on a biweekly basis. And we took our old set of 10 values that were pretty generic, I would say, things like, you know, passion was a cultural value, which is great, but you know, what does that really mean? And we turned it into five um, values that truly embody core stream. Um, and I'll start with C, which is nice. And so the team spent a lot of time really um, soul searching, interviewing other people throughout the organization. The council is made up of people from all different backgrounds in terms of team, age, gender, race, all that. So it's really diverse. And I think it's a good sampling of um, core streamers overall. And we went into each of the key values, but then also what do they specifically mean um, in terms of what they drive day to day. And so um, that helped to really identify, okay, who are we really at our core? Um, and how do we then use that in the interview process? And how do we you know, embody that day to day? And so some of the things that we're doing, um, we actually have in our interview process a cultural interview as one of the last stage um, last stages of our interview process that just focuses on the cultural values and how that person embodies them and what matters to them and does that align with our culture. I think that's helped dramatically for us to um, you know uh, root out the we have a kind of a no jerks policy and that's worked really well and people just enjoy working with each other as a result. I think. Um, and then in addition, um, what we're starting to, to do within town halls, which we have on a monthly basis is showcase a value, talk about it, explain it. They're relatively, you know, things like uh, we drive change, right? Um, it's pretty obvious, but then also more importantly, showcasing how core streamers are embodying that particular cultural value through specific examples. And our employee of the month process to nominate someone for employee of the month actually has you fill out, hey, how are they embodying you know, um, our value around uh, celebrating, right? Celebrating successes, driving change, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think all of those things have helped to take our five values that we've come up with and actually um, basically help recognize and promote them within the organization where we see people showcasing them. I, th I think without exception on this show, um, people have a no, no jerk stroke, no asshole stroke, you know, <laughs> layabouts need not apply type of thing. And I think that's yes. definitely been a consistent theme. I've never joined an organization myself. We have this culture ourselves where there's somebody who's just doesn't want to be there. You're not welcome here, quite frankly. I mean, that's the yeah. bottom line yeah. for us. Um, so that's been wonderful. I think, you know, as we kind of wrap up and round the corner here, um, I and I think I know some of the answer already, but I'm keen to hear it on a personal level because mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit earlier, we, we often ask our guests, you know, what is a key hack that you would share with our, you know, audience around something that keeps you accountable and keeps you motivated? You mentioned there about Smartsheet, which is a tool I love myself, Tableau. We've had folks mention things like pen and paper, their calendar, et cetera. Mm -hmm. what, what we'd love to kind of part ways on is, you know, how do you, how do you share your ethos, your hacks, tips and tricks to um, folks who want to, you know, be part 
um, of the role that you or aspire to be part of the role that you're currently in, how would you share some of your wisdom and what are the kind of must-have tools in your toolkit, as it were, that keep you accountable day to day? Maybe it's your fitness watch, but please, keen to hear what it is. Yeah, I'll give you an example of a day-to-day and kind of a longer-term planning one as well. Um, day-to-day, I'm a big fan of um, this. Uh, it's, it's effectively a website. It's an email plugin called followupthen.com. And you effectively BCC when you want the email to bounce back into your inbox. I mm-hmm. think this is now maybe native to certain email clients as well, but it's um, I started using it you know, seven, eight years ago before that was the case. So you can BCC, you know, 7 p.m. or next Thursday or October 31st or a recurring basis. And so that way it really helps me not to miss anything, but at the same time to feel like my inbox is cleared and I have a mental, you know, clarity when the day is done with inbox zero, which is, you know, kind of my, my jam. Um, but then, you you know, I'm not forgetting things for my future self. So that's a great kind of day-to-day hack for me. Um, in terms of long-term, what I've started to do lately is block um, once a month, I'll block two or three hours on my calendar for effectively thinking time. And I've read a lot about this, um, about what successful CEOs and other leaders will do. And they'll sometimes do that, you know, weekly or even daily. And, um, for me right now, monthly is really what I can squeeze into my schedule, but I'll effectively just free write. And sometimes I'll do this on flights as well, where I don't have internet or what have you. And I can just kind of shut off and think about the business, think about challenges, solutions, and just free um, kind of journal about it. Um, I've started using uh, Miro or Mural in terms of like an online whiteboarding tool to then take those free thoughts from my notebook and kind of give some structure to them around, okay, over the last month, what has worked well, what hasn't, um, where are we behind on our goals, where are we ahead, why, what does that mean, what are the next actions, and effectively I end up with, you know, anywhere from three to five, six actions uh, that I need to um, take with the team over the next month. And then I'll next month we'll do it all over again and kind of reflect on how that went. Um, that's just been a really good tool for me to stay grounded in what really matters. What are the big rocks? What is a longer term vision? Because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the day to day and then the kind of check the box, easy stuff, but, you know, carving out that heads down time, I think is really critical for, um, leaders to remain successful. Love it. I think that's very helpful. We actually had Mural on the show a couple there of seasons go. ago. No so, way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Great tool. Um, yeah. for sure. Um, I'm a big fan of the email uh, that you mentioned. It's one I heard many years ago that I haven't actually revisited. So something to certainly look at. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment by uh, an illusionist called Keith Barry. He's native here, but he's he's been all over the world. But he's written a book called Hack Your Brain, and he talks about what you mentioned there. It's called a thinking day. So I actually mm-hmm. have one on Monday of next week where I'm not going to book any meetings. I'm going to go to a cafe for the entire day and work on the next five years. And that's it. And he suggests you do that at least once a month. I think it's yeah, invaluable it. because our brains are spinning. So like myself and John have families. We're all very busy people. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter mm-hmm. of taking a step back from that and from a moment and thinking about the bigger picture, why we do and what we do and reorganizing our day-to-day and our habitual behaviors to feed into a bigger picture and just checking the machines well-oiled, the piano's tuned, so to speak. So I think that's inherently valuable. Very, very totally. indeed. Yeah, it, it's a different part of your brain. I've read about this. And so you have mm-hmm. to make time for it or else you cannot have that type of thinking. So I think that's great. Um, but that sounds like a lot of fun. 100%. Ross, if you do that once a month, right, and you you work on the next five years, so like 
in in a year you have the next 60 years of your life covered it's a rolling plan yeah i'm not going to say like stalin but it's a five-year plan it's a rolling plan it's not accumulative um, yeah it's it's um and it's certainly a theme that we've heard from a few of the sea level leaders around um leaving parts of their calendar blank they specifically Mm -hmm. leave them blank because they find that sometimes they're in a position where they they just don't want to not have time for people when things come at them you know so they say you know what okay yeah i got i got that that blind spot there that's entirely what this is supposed to be for you know right and 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 you can never preempt that stuff you know it's it's Mm -hmm. it's part of the the growth of a business that you know the onus is on you to try and create those kind of time slots for the most important things which are which are usually the the kind of dynamic elements and and it could be something like hey we gotta we gotta you know there's a there's a there's a big customer over here that really requires us to batten down the hatches and kind of you know come up with a plan on how we're going to retain this customer because this and this and this happened you know and it could be something like that it could be we really need to you know um find out ways on how we can retain this real a player you know um, mm-hmm. um person on our you know demand gen team um because they they they've got a really great offer somewhere else or you know something like that it could be anything um uh, like that but yeah look thanks so much for those insights it's been wonderful uh, being with you today gwen thank you for um for for sharing and um yeah we we really look forward to um to watching the progress of of course stream and we wish you guys nothing but the best in the future Yes, yeah, I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks a lot, Ross and John, for making it happen. Our pleasure. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.